Well, as I said earlier, we're, we're in the midst of studying uh, Judges chapter 5, where we find the song of Deborah. We started to look at that last week, and um, we will continue to do so this week. If you recall, I said that for our purposes, we're going to divide the song into three stanzas. Uh, verses 2 through 11 was the introduction to the song. And verses 11, or 12 through 22 um, describes the battle um, and describes the um, hosts of the Lord that went into that battle against the Canaanites. And the third stanza, verses 23 through 31, is the aftermath following the battle. And so, uh, Lord willing, we hopefully will finish uh, stanza number one and maybe get through stanza two today. And we'll see, uh, see how that all works out. So, uh, verse six is where we'll start off, uh, chapter five. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted. And travelers went by a roundabout ways. The peasantry ceased. They ceased in Israel. Until I, Deborah, arose. Until I arose, a mother in Israel. New gods were chosen. Then war was at the gates. Not a shield or a spear was seen among the 40,000 in Israel. Verse 6 talks about Shamgar, which we've already talked about in, in class in earlier lessons. Um, he was judging in the south of the country, while Deborah was judging in the north. And as I noted in previous lessons, um, uh, these could have been the days of Barak, but here in this verse we see that um, Jael is raised up. And because of Barak's um, weak faith, uh, he lost the honor of defeating the enemy uh, to J.L. This explicit uh, reference to Shamgar as son of Anath is a reminder of which, uh, which God is truly the Almighty One. Remember, if you recall, uh, Anath was a um, goddess uh, and a bride of Baal. And we believe that Shamgar came out of that Baal worship, out of the Canaanite uh, culture, uh, and rose up to be a judge among Israel. And so we see that um, the goddess Anath may be losing some of her people, uh, as evidenced by Shamgar, and she can't hold on to the people. Uh, and it also seems to be a, uh, a symbolic uh, relationship here, the weakness of Anath and the strength of Deborah and Jael, who are the brides of the Lord. So we see the bride of uh, Baal losing out to uh, the bride of, of the Lord. It says in these verses that the highways were captured by the Canaanites 
the people had to go through uh, the wooded areas and around the mountains by way of footpaths that uh, diverted off of the roads. And this ties back to the theme of sanctuary, where God had said in Deuteronomy 19.3, You shall prepare the roads for yourself and divide into three parts the territory of your land, which the Lord your God will give you as a possession. And it shall be for every manslayer to flee there. These roads are important for the sanctuary uh, cities to be connected. Um, and again, people would flee to the sanctuary cities to uh, receive a fair hearing and trial. Uh, should there be a dispute, particularly in the case of murder, uh, if it was an accidental death. So in other words, there would be no effective sanctuary provided for if the roads were not well kept, if they were under siege by the Canaanites. Um, they would have to be open means of communications to other cities. So if that uh, sanctuary protection of God is to be restored, then the roads had to be restored. And that falls upon Barak and his army to uh, recapture the roads, to re-clear the roads, and to re-establish the sanctuary uh, that God had originally intended. Verse 7 has a Hebrew word in it that's only found in one other place in the Old Testament, and that is in, a, in a verse 11 of the same section of, of the Song of Deborah. So there's the same verse in 7 and the same verse in 11. And when I read it to you in your hearing, I used the word peasants. Maybe you have the word iron in your interpretation. Um, there's a conflict between scholars, and I'm not here to solve that conflict. I have no idea which way to go on this. <laughs> but uh, some believe that the term means peasants. Some believe the term means iron, as in metal. <laughs> and so um, I'll make a comment both ways on the verse, dealing with, with peasants and dealing with iron as well. <clears throat> So if 7 refers to the peasantry, we see that the peasantry who lived in the countryside uh, were falling prey to the Canaanites. Uh, there was massive state taxation. Uh, it was killing the agriculture of the uh, farm people. Um, people were leaving their lands as evidenced by Deborah who came out of Iskar and down to Ephraim. And of course, the peasant girls and wives were at great risk from the Canaanites as well. Oppression was everywhere. And once the highways to the sanctuaries were restored, however, then the pe peasantry would again feel safe uh, traveling from place to place. But that would require the submission of the Canaanites, the destruction of their army, in order to restore that safety. Assuming the verse 7 
the word in verse 7 refers to iron. Uh, we have here an indication that Sisera and the Canaanites had carefully removed all tools and weapons of iron from Israel. Um, and this is reiterated in verse 8. And that's probably the interpretation that I would lean towards uh, because of the context here, particularly with uh, verse 8. So since Israel lacks iron, God must act as the iron weapons on their behalf, as verse 11 indicates. And verse 7b tells us that Deborah's purpose was to be a mother in Israel. A mother implies, I think, new birth, and clearly what Israel needed at this time was repentance and a new birth both spiritually and culturally. Verse 8 is interesting because of the two phrases don't seem to run parallel. We talked about parallelism last time. Yet if you look at it, um, they actually do run parallel. If men rebel against the Lord and choose new gods, then it will naturally follow that there will be a war. There will be a war between the people following the new gods and the people following the God of Israel. And likewise, before there can be any peace, there must be a victory through repentance and, uh, again, the reestablishment of the old God, the true God of Israel, the God who marches from Mount Seir back in verse 4. Since the people had chosen the gods of the Canaanites, God put them under the culture of the Canaanites. We went over this in earlier lessons, that if you want to live in that culture, you want to follow those gods, then I'm going to give you over to that. And that sin, the worship of Baal and following the culture, became the punishment to the Israelites. So um, he gave them what they wanted as a means of judging them. And they would eventually live under that culture, live under those Baal gods, until they would cry out to the one true God to deliver them. So <clears throat> let me step aside here and kind of make a modern application. Uh, I've said at the beginning of this study that the secular humanism in our culture today is a direct correlation to the worship and relationship to the Baal culture of the Canaanites. We are coming to the end of what is properly called Pride Month, which celebrates all things sexually perverted. But let's take a look back at the first Pride Month or Pride Day. Turn to Genesis chapter 19. Verses 23 through 29. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. 
Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valleys and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the, of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. So we see the first Friday did not go down too well. God judged those cities that practiced those abominations. I believe this passage demonstrates that homosexuality is both great sin and also great punishment for that sin. When you want sin bad enough, God will allow you to wallow in it, like he did the Israelites in Canaan. And it becomes like a millstone around your neck. And here we see that the punishment fits the crime. Either God will judge as he did in Sodom and Gomorrah, or he will judge individuals for their sin from his white throne on the last day. The Bible does not teach pride day. The Bible teaches us there should be less pride and more humility and repentance. Proverbs 11.2 When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs 16.18 Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 21.4 Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, are sin. In James 4.6 God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So I think that <clears throat> the Israelites gave us a good example. You want to sin, God's going to turn you over to that sin. And we see that happening in our culture today. But God will judge it. And he will judge it uh, by allowing you that sin until you cry out for him. But you will face judgment for it. Comments or thoughts? Moving on to verse 8b, uh, this tells us that uh, though the men of Israel did have few weapons because they used them during the battle of the Canaanites, uh, yet they dared not let them be uh, seen, for the Canaanites uh, were everywhere, their eyes were everywhere, and without getting too political, the modern form of Baalus want us to have gun registration laws instead of enforcing the laws that are on the books. 
So you might say that the ancient bailiffs had shield control laws and spear registration laws to make it easier to disarm and control the people. So they did not have those weapons. Probably what they ended up having um, is brass utensils, and brass does not sharpen as well as iron. It's a lot more bendable, flexible. It's not as strong as iron. So God had to go before them. God was the iron weapon uh, in their arsenal. And we've already read that God had won the battle for them. All Balak had to do is, is to go in behind and mop up. Starting verse 9. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel, the volunteers among the people. Bless the Lord. You who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on carpets, and you who travel on the road, sing. The voice of the minstrels at the watering places, there they shall recount the righteous deeds of the Lord. The righteous deeds of his peasantry is in Israel. Then the people of the Lord went down to the gates. We see here that all, all the various classes of people within their culture um, volunteered. People that were high and, and powerful, uh, the rich and the mighty, down to the lowly peasants. We see that in verse 9, um, that both uh, groups of people, some were leaders, some were fighters. Um, they came together uh, as God's people to uh, do God's battle against the Canaanites. Verse 10 refers to the two classes as they travel on the uh, newly restored highways. Um, the wealthy uh, would ride on white donkeys or set on fine carpets or rugs. Um, they might put that over the donkey or they might have carriages in which the donkeys were pulling and they sat in the carriages on the rugs. Uh, it could be interpreted as different ways. While the poorer members of society would walk down those roads, both groups are called upon to do something. And that something is translated as sing. But the word could also be translated consider. I'm not sure if that's in your Bibles or not. If they are being told to sing, then we find that all the people are to join in the song of Deborah. Those who fight for God also sing about God. And of course, that's one of the ways that they recorded their history, and it made it easier to remember it, was uh, reciting these things over and over, the deeds that God had performed for them. And, and to do it in song, um, uh, made it even easier. And like you see here, they were gathering around the water coolers, in this case, the place where they watered their flocks or their camels, and uh, they would sing the songs there to each other and together about the great deeds of the Lord. So if the word means consider, then both groups are being told to consider the fact that Deborah's song will be sung 
at all the watering places in Israel as a praise to the Lord. The first phrase of uh, verse 11 is kind of obscured and literally says this, at the voice or sound of those who divide at the watering places. And some have thought that the dividing spoken of here might be the dividing of flocks of, of sheep and goats. Um, but since we are dealing with voices and sounds, it's more likely to refer to the dividing of strings on a stringed instrument, like a guitar. You divide the strings by pushing down on the board to get different uh, uh, pitches and sounds from your instrument. But many uh, scholars now believe that this is a reference to minstrel singing. So the song of Deborah will be sung in all these places as a remembrance of what God has done. <clears throat> As you uh, probably are aware, of, in my estimation, how singing is a very conservative thing. Um, it has been my experience that people don't like to learn new songs. Maybe Rachel would say yes or no to that. I don't know. Um, but songs. Uh, we tend to like to stick to the old songs, stick to the ones that we know. Uh, songs thus have a way of sealing and protecting or guarding a culture. And if I mentioned Kay Kaiser and Benny Goodman and uh, the Dorsey brothers today, probably very few young people would know who those people were. Uh, that was for different generations and songs and music that preserves the culture for those different generations. Martin Luther once said that he did not care who, so much who wrote the theologies as long as he could write the hymns. Deborah's task as a mother of Israel was to protect the children from Baalism. So by creating a song that scoffed or made fun of Baalism, at the same time praising the one true Lord, the God of Israel, she was engaged in a very important work here. Those who sang the song of Deborah would be less likely to slide backwards into Baalism. But that these things that, that God has done were brought to mind continuously. If, however, we take uh, verse 11 to mean peasantry, uh, we have the notion here that Barak's army was a peasant army. A peasant army defeated Caesar's professional army. On the other hand, if we take the verse 11b to refer to iron, then the idea is that God's miracle was that he was the iron, his iron will and his iron power went before the army of Barak uh, to destroy the Canaanites. The Canaanites had sought to establish an iron monopoly, much like the Philistines did uh, in 1 Samuel 13. However, they made a big mistake because they did not anticipate the power, the iron power of Israel's God. They did not take into account the Lord of hosts. 
So finally, the last phrase in verse 11 completes the thought began back at verse 8. Those who face the war in the gates now come out of hiding, go down to the gates of their towns to face the enemy. <laughs> A strengthened, reborn Israel is now ready to fight and destroy the enemies of God. And that brings us to the end of the first stanza. Any comments, thoughts on any of those verses or ideas? Yeah. Consider what? I said I find it interesting that the, the word consider or sing could mean either one. Yeah. Because I think that's a principle that we should carry into our modern day singing that we sing with understanding, we sing doctrine that is true right. and not 7 Eleven courses. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if we stand there and, and just sing this because we like the melody or the tune, as opposed to actually reading the words and taking those things into consideration, uh, they are a message as well as what you're going to hear from the pulpit. Yeah. I can remember lyrics at times, but I
read an awful it's a play. A bitter drink shall drain. Next generation up the line. It, it, at the end, I'll say they'll have peace for 40 years or 80 years and then disciples. So, so we, we can see that in the midst of our culture today. It seems like the cycle's getting worse and worse. And, All right, we'll move on to stanza two then, starting in verse 12. Uh, in this stanza, in these verses, um, we see a list of the tribes who came to fight and those who did not. And we see Deborah praising one group and scorning the other. And so the battle <coughs> uh, is then described as to what took place with the fight between the Canaanites and Barak and, and God's army. 12a, awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake and sing a song. Arise, Barak, and take captive, O captives, O son of Abinam. Deborah encourages herself here to um, um, sing. And... Um, Again, a lot of the psalms that we find in the scripture uh, were psalms that were psalms to sing and songs to remember God's glory, songs to remember uh, the great deeds that He has done, the love He has shown. There's psalms that they would sing as they would go up to the uh, temple to worship. So she's saying here, sing the song. She's encouraging Barak to do the same. Uh, Deborah, encouraged, uh, Deborah encourages Barak to lead his captives captive. Now this is kind of a curious command because if you remember back in verse chapter 4, verse 16, <clears throat> they wiped them out. There wasn't anybody left. Uh, they were killed to the man. Uh, so it's an interesting command that she gives him here. 
in that regard. But it's not totally uh, isolated in Scripture. The same kind of language is used elsewhere. Uh, in Psalm 68:18, uh, in reference to the Lord, it says, When you ascend on high, you took many captives. You received gifts from people, even from the rebellious, that you, Lord God, might dwell there. We know that God didn't have captives, but um, he was showing uh, the power of him, the force of him, um, dealing with rebellious people. And then in Ephesians 4, 8, dealing with Christ, it says, this is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. So in principle, what we're seeing here is a, a picture of foreshadow or example of Barak as being told to exemplify Jesus Christ um, to go forth like Christ would go forth like the Lord God would go forth to bear his arms and fight the victories. Starting in verse 13. Then the remnant of the nobles came down and the people of the Lord came down to me as warriors. From Ephraim, those who whose root is in Arnalat, following you, Benjamin, with your people. From Makar, uh, commanders came down. And from Zebulun, those who wield the pen of the scribe. And my prince of Iskar uh, were with Deborah, as was Iskar. So was Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his feet, among the divisions of Reuben, great resolves of the heart. Why did he sit among the sheepfolds for, for saddlebags, to hear the pipings for the flocks? Among the divisions of Reuben, great searchings of heart. Gilead remained across the Jordan. And why did Dan stay in ships and Asher sat by the seashore and remained by the landings? Zebulun was a people who despised their lives even to death, and Naphtali also on the high places of the field. Both nobles and commanders, commoners rather, came to fight. See that in verse 13. And now we have a list of those who did fight. First we see Ephraim, and <clears throat> followed by Benjamin. Now, Benjamin was a small tribe, and basically uh, their numbers were reduced. Uh, if you haven't remembered this story, um, there was war against Benjamin, uh, which we'll cover in chapters 19 through 21 of Judges. So their numbers were reduced because of that conflict. Uh, but they came along uh, with Ephraim as a part of their forces. So even God can use a small, insignificant group in mighty ways. All they have to do is have the faith to step out and follow. The part of Manasseh that located on the Mediterranean side of the Jordan here is called Machar. 
Next year. They contributed commanders. Uh, this was an important battle for them because, if you recall, the land that they were fighting on was the land that they were supposed to clear out and failed to do so back in chapter 1. Zebulun contributed some scribes. And this kind of confused me for a while. It's, uh, it's until I read the commentator who mentioned this. Men who uh, swung pens instead of swords was kind of an interesting thing during time of war. Uh, but this commentator said that these scribes enrolled the men and con uh, collected the required atonement mo money. Every time the army of the Lord was mustered, the men paid each a half a shekel of silver to atone for the blood spilled in the war, which money went to the upkeep of the tabernacle. Um, I'd have to do some more research to be able to verify that, but I thought it was an interesting um, side note of history. This car, uh, this car was Deborah's tribe, as we see in verse 15. Uh, she called them my princes. And again, remember, she and her husband moved from there, uh, probably because of persecution, down to Ephraim. Uh, they were right there for Deborah and right there for Barak. And as Barak was leading the attack, they were right behind him, supporting him. Now Deborah begins pointing out, uh, maybe even sarcastically, to ridicule the tribe that did not come to fight. Reuben, <laughs> the tribe of Reuben, Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob. He should have had the preeminence but because he was unable, he was unstable, he was double-minded, he lost that birthright in Genesis 49. The tribe of Reuben here seems to be all talk and no action. They made resolutions, but those resolutions are full of empty words. Uh, the first couplet and the third are identical, except for one change. Uh, the, the resolves of Reuben uh, disintegrated from, into what they call searchings. They made these promises and then they backed off on those promises. So as a result, it became an object of Deborah's mockery. So not fighting. The other tribes uh, who failed to show up at least did not make any bold promises uh, for support. Gilead stayed across the Jordan with Manasseh and Gad. And they, with Dan and Asher, uh, were in the vicinity and should have showed some concern, but they were too busy with the day-to-day -day activities of life to come to the aid of their brothers and sisters. <laughs> I think what's interesting here is that their refusal to fight is now recorded for all of history to read. Uh, and we can label here uh, as those who did not follow God uh, into this battle. Judah and Simeon are not included in this list because they dwell too far to the south. And so their participation is probably not expected, but keep in mind they were dealing with the Philistines down south. So they had their own issues 
have to deal with. Levi is not included uh, since it's not a political tribe, but it's scattered throughout Israel. And then finally, it, uh, Deborah returns to keep praise upon Zebulun and Naphtalene uh, for their main force, their main uh, group of people that fought the battles for, for God. Verse 19, um, the kings came and fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanat, uh, near the waters of Megado. They took no plunder and silver. The stars fought from heaven. From their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrents of Kishon swept them, uh, swept them away. The ancient torrents, the torrents of Kishon, O oh, my soul, march on with strength. Then the horse's hoofs beat from the dashing, the dashing of his valiant steeds. We see here more description of the battle uh, given as opposed to what we read back in chapter 4. The fact that the Canaanites took no spoils is picked up again in verses 28 to 30. Uh, it's included here as a kind of an understatement. It, <clears throat> the Canaanites lost more than treasure. They lost the land, they lost the culture, they lost everything. You see some verses here dealing with the stars fighting in heaven. And of the stars controlling the weather, bringing about rain. And that was common in Baalism. Um, again, Baal was uh, one of the gods of storms. He was supposed to control the weather. Here, Deborah asserts that the stars are part of God's heavenly host and that their control of the weather is for the good of Israel. Baalism is powerless. God is all-powerful. The notion that those who trust in Baal have the stars and the weather on their sides is a lie. Because of the modern uh, influence of Baalism in our culture today, what we call secular humanism, people tend to think that God, when he made the world, if there is a God, or if there, he was created, they were created, installed what they call natural laws, or processes that work automatically and impersonally. This idea came out of the time period in history known as the Enlightenment. This philosophy was championed by people like Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. They had what they call a deistic uh, worldview, not a Christian worldview. What we call natural or physical law is actually just a rough generalization of, of God's ordinary daily activity uh, governing and sustaining his creation. Genesis tells us that matter, space, and time are created by God all at the same moment, and that are ruled directly and actively daily uh, by, his, by him, and this rule is called law, God's law. God almost always causes things to be done the same way, according to what some call covenant regular, 
regularities, which is basically the Christian look at natural law uh, and science. These covenant regularities uh, were established in Genesis 8:22. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Science and technology are possible because God does not change the rules. God, man, God, so God, I'm sorry, so man can confidently explore the world and learn about it because the rules don't change. Now, either way, it's a form of faith. Either you have faith in the natural laws and veil or you have faith in God and his trustworthiness uh, in maintaining uh, his creation and sustaining his creation. Let me read you a quote here. A heavenly master governs all the world as sovereign of the universe. We are astonished at him by reason of his perfection. We honor him and fall down before him because of his unlimited power. From behind, from blind physical necessity, which is always and everywhere the same, no variety adhering to time and space could evolve, and all variety of created objects which represent order and life in the universe could happen only by the willful reasoning of its original creator, whom I call the Lord God. Now, there's a quote from Sir Isaac Newton. Scientist Johannes Kelper simply says it this way, science is the process of thinking God's thoughts after him. So God used Baal's own weapons, the weather and the water, to destroy Baal's army. The Kishon River flooded, swamping the chariots of the Canaanites. So the Lord showed his power over the dreaded iron chariots, Kishon was particularly appropriate for this because it was a fast-moving river. And we'll see that this theme of the river purging the land has already been used once in Judges chapter 3. And it will occur um, two more times in the book of Judges. Why the Kishon is called ancient torrent is not really clear. Uh, my guess is that it might be a subtle reference to Noah's flood. Um, it might have something, to, a reference to the swallowing up of Pharaoh uh, with the Red Sea. Although we see the Kishon again uh, sweeping away the Baalists in 1 Kings under Elijah's orders. And even later, uh, Josiah destroys uh, idols at the Kishon River. So Deborah kind of interrupts her song um, here at the end. She says, oh, my soul, march on in strength. It's our role to march on for God. He gives us the strength to do that. We see at the end here the enemy tried to escape either on foot or on horseback by cutting the horses away from the chariots and riding them away. This attempt failed, 
The horses were trapped in the mud, and their thrashing hoofs uh, killed many of the Canaanite soldiers. So this great war machine of chariots and horses uh, turned into a liability uh, rather than an asset under the providence of the one true living God. Takes us to the end of stanza two. Any thoughts or comments? What's that? Well, I didn't get to 23. I ended at 22. <laughs> Brother Ken, would you close us in order for him? Amen. Mm-hmm.